Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for the Saturday, January 15th, 2022 reading of the Denver Post. My name is Doug Crane. Today, we will be reading the following main articles. COVID-19 in Colorado, most of hospitalized, unvaccinated, written by Meg Wingerter. Adams 14, management company clash over return to in-person classes amid COVID surge, written by Jessica Seaman. Colorado House Republicans protest masking requirements in the Capitol, written by Saja Hinti. U.S. intelligence, tensions flare over Ukraine. U.S. claims Russia sent saboteurs to create pretext for invasion, written by David Sanger. And following up with miscellaneous articles. COVID-19 in Colorado, most of hospitalized, unvaccinated, by Meg Wingerter, The Denver Post. The percentage of Coloradans hospitalized with COVID-19 who are unvaccinated is less overwhelming than it was in the fall, but people who have had the shot still appear to have much more protection against serious illness. During the peak of the Delta wave, from mid-November to late December, 80 to 86 percent of people hospitalized for COVID-19 on any given day were unvaccinated, according to state data. The percentage started dropping on New Year's Eve and hovered around 70 percent this week. But it appears that those who are most seriously ill are more likely to be unvaccinated. At UC Health, about 82 percent of COVID-19 patients in the intensive care unit and 91 percent of those patients on ventilators were unvaccinated as of Thursday morning. No one tracks the vaccination status of all patients in ICUs or on ventilators statewide. The more contagious Omicron variant of COVID-19 has made it a bit more difficult to interpret hospitalization numbers and vaccine effectiveness than in previous waves, said Dr. Michelle Barron, Senior Medical Director of Infection Control and Prevention at UC Health. During the fall wave, driven by the Delta variant, the number of patients who happened to test positive for COVID-19 but primarily needed care for something else was minimal, she said. As of this week, though, about two-thirds of COVID-positive patients at UC Health came in for some other reason. On a recent day, only about one-third of the 355 patients who had tested positive for the virus were receiving oxygen or a medication used for severe COVID-19, like the steroid dexamethasone or the antiviral remdesivir, Barron said. The health system is still analyzing the data to see if those patients were disproportionately likely to be unvaccinated, she said. Barron, who works with patients who have had organ or bone marrow transplants, said that all of the people she saw recently who were vaccinated and had COVID-19 were there because of other infections or accidents. That's notable because people with suppressed immune systems are one of the groups that's most vulnerable to a severe breakthrough infection, although the number of people she saw was too small to draw a scientific conclusion. The one patient who was seriously sick from the virus was unvaccinated, she said. It really hit home that Omicron is behaving potentially differently, she said. 
The state published data differently before November, so it's difficult to compare the current situation with the end of the third wave in winter 2020 or the fourth wave in spring 2021. Looking at the weekly data published since January 2021, the percentage of hospitalized patients who are unvaccinated fell from 100% to around 75% at points during the Delta surge. Part of that simply reflects vaccine coverage in the state. As of early 2021, no one was two weeks out from their second shot, meaning the entire population was considered unvaccinated. Now, more than 3.8 million of Colorado's 5.8 million people have been vaccinated, 77% of all adults in the state. That means three-quarters of the state's COVID-19 hospitalizations still are coming from the one-quarter of the population that isn't fully vaccinated. More vaccinated people are testing positive, and the sheer volume of positive cases will result in increased hospital demand. A spokesman for Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment said the vaccines are working effectively at preventing severe illness, hospitalization and death from COVID-19. Nationwide, COVID-19 hospitalizations are at their highest point since the pandemic began, according to The New York Times. Colorado hasn't yet passed the record set in early December 2020, but the state's hospitals are strapped with about 92% of intensive care beds and 93% of general beds full this week. While it's good news that Omicron generally causes less severe disease, that doesn't mean everyone should catch it and get it over with, Barron said. Some people are still becoming seriously ill, and some who have mild infections go on to develop long COVID symptoms like persistent fatigue, she said. And the sheer number of people infected means that even if an individual's risk of severe disease is low, hospitals could run out of room. I think the next two weeks are going to be a rough rise just because of numbers, she said. Adams 14, management company clash over return to in-person classes amid COVID surge. By Jessica Seaman, The Denver Post. The Adams 14 School District announced Thursday that students will return to the classroom next week, but it made clear that the decision was against school and district leaders' wishes to wait another week before ending virtual learning. Instead, they said the management company overseeing the district directed students and staff members to be at school Tuesday, a notion that MGT Consulting disputes as the conflict over when to resume in-person learning has become just the latest round in the feud between the two. This is just one more example of patterns of activity that go beyond being unprofessional and that crosses the line into vengefulness, said Robert London, executive director of communications and special projects for Adams 14. The relationship between Adams 14 and its state-mandated manager reached a new degree of enmity this week after it was revealed the school board is suing the company for alleged violating state public record laws, voted to end its contract with the firm, and sent a notice to MGT Consulting stating that its manager for the district, Andre Wright, can no longer contact the district or employees. District officials even went so far as to lock Wright out of both of his work email and school buildings, according to district emails obtained by the Denver Post. The tension over this decision is indicative of a larger problem, which is that the district is violating the order of the State Board of Education again, Wright said in a statement. 
Earlier this week, the superintendent inexplicably revoked my access to district offices. This is the second time in six months that the district has locked out MGT, even though the district has agreed that MGT is the lead partner. Adams 14 announced on January 7th that the district planned to move all schools to virtual learning for at least a week amid a rapid increase in coronavirus infections in Adams County. The school district, based in Commerce City, has about 6,000 students. The move wasn't surprising, given the highly contagious Omicron variant is infecting more and more Coloradans, leading to a surge in COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. School officials across the Denver metro area have said they are doing everything they can to keep their buildings open for in-person learning, but also warned parents to be prepared for individual schools or classes to go online as more of their staff are becoming sick. Adams 14 is one of the first districts to move all schools into virtual learning, and last week the district told parents that it would decide by Thursday on whether to remain remote or to resume in-person classes. Adams 14 staff met on Thursday to discuss whether to reopen school buildings next week, ultimately deciding they wanted to wait another week to see what happens with cases and to give them more time to develop a system they could use to move individual campuses or classes to remote learning based on specific metrics, such as absenteeism, instead of the entire district. The decision was supported by the district's principals and Superintendent Carla Loria asked both the school board and Wright, the MGT manager, to approve the recommendation by 3 p.m., London said. At about 3.30 p.m., London emailed the principals saying that Mr. Wright issued a directive indicating instead that all instruction was to occur in person for the entirety of next week. No further explanation was given according to a copy of the email reviewed by the Post. The newspaper has not seen the initial email sent by Wright or MGT Consulting, but another email sent at 4.20 p.m. by an employee for MGT Consulting on Wright's behalf, his email was disconnected, told district staff that this week was supposed to have been spent getting their plan in place and resolving teacher demands related to mitigating the spread of the virus. This district has had enough time to do this work, and any additional time adversely impacts the community, said the email. My recommendation is to return Monday to in-person learning until further notice. London said MGT Consulting's response was a directive that the district was bound to follow and noted that it came two days after the school board voted for a second time to sever ties with the company. After the first time, the State Board of Education forced the district to work with the company and briefly pulled Adams 14's accreditation. We have no idea what the implications will be, London said. It's understandable that families would feel unsettled and lose confidence. Kids should not be caught in the crossfire of the agenda of adults. MGT Consulting said it made a recommendation. After evaluating the current situation in Adams 14, I recommend that schools reopen for in-person learning next week, Wright said in his statement. Our schools and offices are taking many precautions, and in-person learning is so critical for students, especially after the disruptions of the last two years. At least part of the clash over whether to resume in-person classes is occurring because the response from MGT Consulting came from Wright. 
The school board sent a notice to the company on Tuesday saying that while it expects MGT Consulting to work until its contract ends on April 11th, Wright is no longer allowed to contact district employees. The notice, which was obtained by the Post, states that Wright breached his contract by firing an employee outside of his authority. The concern is that this return to school email that was sent out was based on an approval of Andre Wright, and the district has previously advised MGT that Andre Wright is not to have any other contact with the district or district staff, said Joe Salazar, an attorney representing Adams 14th school board in its lawsuit against the company. Wright refuted the claim he fired the employee, providing an email that showed while he supported the decision, the district's head of human resources was the one who recommended action. He declined a further comment on the allegations against Wright. MGT Consulting declined the Post's request for an interview with Wright. Adams 14 School Board is seeking public documents via a lawsuit related to an investigation by the company into a personnel matter. The investigation occurred as the district was conducting its own financial audit, the results of which have not been made public. A hearing on the lawsuit is planned for January 21st. Colorado House Republicans protest masking requirements in the Capitol. By Saja Hindi, The Denver Post. Colorado House Republicans, who largely don't wear face masks at the Capitol, fought against a resolution Friday that would require masks and social distancing for members of the public in the Capitol amid a high number of Omicron cases. The heated argument that pitted them against Democrats was over House Resolution 22-1003 to allow Speaker Alec Garnett, a Denver Democrat, to create safety regulations during a public health emergency, which ultimately passed on a party-line vote. While staff members and the public will be required to don the masks in committee rooms, the galleries and chamber after the rules are set, lawmakers would only be encouraged to wear them. GOP House Minority Leader Hugh McKean said the mask mandate cannot be extended to lawmakers because the state constitution has a provision that prohibits legislators from being prevented from doing their jobs. That means a lawmaker can't be kicked out of the building for not wearing a mask, for example. Garnett assured Republican members that he would consult with McKean when deciding on regulations and possible changes. Republican Representative Stephanie Luck of Penrose began the discussion by telling House members that those like herself who don't wear masks aren't doing so to put others at risk, and that many of her constituents would not be comfortable coming into the Capitol wearing a mask. Although they have the option of remote testimony, that has its challenges, she added. People who decide not to wear a mask aren't choosing to put other people in harm's way, Luck said. They're looking at a different set of facts. They're looking at a different set of arguments, and they're making the best decisions for themselves and their families based off of those sets of facts. For Luck, that included an argument that mask-wearing reduces oxygen levels, which has been proven false. Multiple studies, including one by UH Rainbow Babies in Children's Hospital, published in February, showed that wearing a cloth or surgical mask did not impair oxygen intake. Public health experts and scientists have repeatedly pointed to the efficacy of mask wearing to curb the spread of the virus. Luck has also introduced House Bill 21-1202 this year to allow the use of off-label drugs to treat COVID-19, such as ivermectin, 
and hydroxychloroquine, both of which the Food and Drug Administration has warned against. Other Republicans also argued against the measures, saying that their rights shouldn't be infringed upon. The arguments frustrated Representative Kyle Mullica, a North Glen Democrat and emergency room nurse, who talked about how in the last week, while taking care of COVID-positive patients, he had to transfer patients from ambulance gurneys to the waiting room because there weren't enough beds available. And listen, the science is clear, he said. Masks help stop the spread of this virus. Mullica added that the medical professionals have worn masks to protect patients who were getting treated for other illnesses even before the pandemic. This idea that we are infringing on somebody's rights or that we are doing something wrong, that's absurd. That's false, he added. We were trying to put policies in place that will protect people. They'll help stop the spread of this virus. We have a job to do in this building to do the people's work, and that's what we're trying to do. Republicans attempted to introduce amendments that would have prevented the mask requirement and prohibited vaccine passports, the latter of which Garnett said were not under consideration for the regulations, were unsuccessful. U.S. Intelligence. Tension flares over Ukraine. U.S. claims Russia sent saboteurs to create pretext for invasion. By David E. Sanger, The New York Times. Washington. The White House accused Moscow on Friday of sending saboteurs into eastern Ukraine to stage an incident that could provide President Vladimir Putin of Russia with a pretext for ordering an invasion of the country. The administration did not release details of the evidence it had collected, but Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, said the operatives were trained in urban warfare and explosives. Russia is laying the groundwork to have the option of fabricating a pretext for invasion, Saki said, including through sabotage activities and information operations, by accusing Ukraine of preparing an imminent attack against Russian forces in eastern Ukraine. She said the Russian military planned to begin these activities several weeks before a military invasion, which could begin in the next 30 days or so. She said Moscow was using the same playbook as it did in 2014 when Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula, a part of Ukraine. John F. Kirby, the Pentagon spokesman, called the intelligence about the operation very credible when asked about it at a news briefing Friday. Two other American officials, speaking on the condition of anonymity to discuss intelligence, said the U.S. assessment was the result of a combination of intercepts and movements on the ground of particular individuals. That could explain the administration's reluctance to declassify granular information for fear of alerting the Russian operatives whose movements are being tracked. The U.S. allegations were clearly part of a strategy to try to prevent the attacks by exposing them in advance, but without releasing the underlying intelligence, some of which has been provided to allies and shown to key members of Congress, the United States opened itself up to Russian charges that it was fabricating evidence. In past years, Russia frequently recalled the deeply flawed intelligence case that the United States built for invading Iraq as part of an effort to discredit the CIA and other U.S. intelligence agencies as political operatives. The accusation by the United States came a day after the conclusion of a week of diplomatic encounters with Russia, moving from Geneva to Brussels to Vienna to de-escalate the confrontation. 
But those talks ended without any agreement to pull back the approximately 100,000 Russian troops massed on the Ukrainian border or for the United States or NATO to accept Moscow's demands that they pull back all forces from former Warsaw Pact countries that have joined NATO. Russia also demanded that the U.S. remove all of its nuclear weapons from Europe and that Ukraine, Belarus, and Georgia, three surrounding states that once were part of the Soviet empire, never join NATO. It is still unclear whether Putin believes those are realistic strategic objectives. Wendy R. Sherman, Deputy Secretary of State, called them non-starters this week, or whether his true focus is on bringing Ukraine to heel. The Russian president wants to expand his country's sphere of influence to include more of the old Soviet bloc, especially former Soviet republics such as Ukraine. The United States has vowed severe financial and technological sanctions if Russia invades, and it has said it would consider arming a Ukrainian insurgency to make any Russian occupation expensive and bloody. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, have warned their Russian counterparts in recent telephone calls that any swift Russian victory in Ukraine probably would be followed by a bloody insurgency similar to the one that drove the Soviet Union from Afghanistan. After the Biden administration made the new accusation against Russia, Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, said the news underscored the need to provide Ukraine with the defensive weapons needed to deter aggression and, if unsuccessful at deterrence, make a Russian invasion costly to the invaders. The Kremlin pushed back against the intelligent assessment. So far, all these statements have been unfounded and have not been confirmed by anything, Dmitry S. Peskov, Putin's spokesman, told TASS, a state-run news agency. One senior Biden administration official said there was concern that saboteurs or provocateurs could stage an incident in Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital, creating a possible pretext for a coup. President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine declared several months ago that he believed a coup attempt was underway, but it never materialized. Ukraine's military intelligence service announced Friday it had intercepted information about a plot by Russian spies to start a sabotage operation from disputed territory in Moldova, south of Ukraine, where Russia maintains a large contingent of troops. The plan was to attack Russian troops stationed at a weapons depot near the border with Ukraine and blame it on Ukrainian forces. Delayed by the pandemic, shelters deal with surge. Staffing shortages hinder agencies' ability to care for animals. By Taylor Shaw, The Denver Post. Denver animal welfare organizations faced a surge in business during the latter half of 2021 that had been delayed by the initial waves of the pandemic, leaving workers overwhelmed as they confronted staff shortages while trying to maintain quality care for the animals. Normally, there's somewhat of a slow season, and we're just not seeing that right now. Megan Dilmore, shelter services manager at the Denver Animal Shelter, said last month, Right now, my team is so swamped that they are getting overtime basically every day, just trying to get their basic cleaning done. With more than 310 animals in its care as of December 1st, the facility was essentially at capacity, Dilmore said, because a combination of reasons that include an atypical influx in customers and animals in recent months, staff shortages, and an increase in the length of stay of animals. 
The Denver Animal Shelter, a division of the city's Department of Public Health and Environment, is an open admission shelter that offers a variety of services, including reuniting lost pets with their owners, facilitating pet adoptions, and accepting surrendered pets that owners relinquish to the shelter. In recent months, the shelter experienced heightened numbers of customers and pets coming to the facility, said Tracy Koss, the customer care manager. For example, the shelter had 400 more transactions in November 2021 than it had in November 2019, followed by 2,000 more transactions in December 21 than in December 2019, Koss said. These transactions included adoptions, pet vaccinations, issuing licenses and permits, store sales, returning lost pets to owners, euthanasia requests, and citation payments. In December's high number was partly the result of donation letters, Koss said, as well as a doubling of adoptions for the month compared with December 2019. Yet despite the recent influx in customers, the shelter was down about 10,000 transactions overall for the year, Koss said. That's because at the beginning of 2021, fewer customers visited than usual, indicating to Koss that people delayed coming until later in the year because of the pandemic. I feel like people are kind of making up time, Koss said of the recent surge. The business they didn't do at the beginning of the year, we're now seeing them coming in and doing that business now. The Denver Dumb Friends League, a Colorado animal welfare organization, experienced a surge in business starting in summer 2021, said CEO and President April Steele, causing the organization to reach capacity for the first time in a decade, with more than 1,500 animals in its care. Everything happened at once for us, Steele said, saying animals that likely would have trickled in month after month during a typical year all came in at once in the summer. We were begging everyone to help transfer from us. Although there was a boom in business in the latter half of 2021, Steele said the average number of animals the organization has received over the past three years would be fairly typical. It's just that it was decreased for so long during the pandemic, and then it all happened at once, she said. Adoption surge didn't hit until 2021. Despite publicity about a surge in adoptions of pandemic pets in 2020, adoption numbers that year were the lowest in five years based on data from 4,000 shelters, according to the American Veterinary Medical Association. The Denver Animal Shelter had more than 700 more adoptions in 2021 than in 2020, Koss said. The Denver Dumb Friends League, likewise, had more adoptions in 2021 than 2020, Steele said. I think the reason people feel like there was an increase is because demand went through the roof. Everybody wanted a pet, Steele said. But in reality, the number of adoptions that happened was significantly decreased because there were fewer animals coming to us. Steele said she thinks fewer animals went to the Denver Dumb Friends League in 2020 because people's lives were largely on hold, resulting in animals mostly staying in their homes with their owners. Koss agreed, saying that in 2020, fewer animals were lost and surrendered to the shelter. In addition to lower animal intake, fewer animals were available for adoption in 2020 because of Colorado's COVID-19 elective surgery halt that temporarily prevented animals from being spayed and neutered. Steele said the executive order that temporarily stopped elective procedures affected veterinary medicine as well as human health care. So all spay and neuter shut down for a significant period of time, Steele said. 
when the Humane Society of the South Platte Valley, a smaller shelter organization based in Littleton that offers spay and neuter services in its low-cost clinic, had to temporarily stop its clinic work due to COVID-19 restrictions, it affected our mission where we couldn't really service the community like we want to. Development manager Mindy Schmidt said, Now that the clinic is back to offering its services, business has been booming, Schmidt said. Although the organization's adoption and surrender numbers have been fairly typical, Schmidt said there have been higher numbers recently of neglected animals. The number of animals the Denver Animal Shelter confiscated, typically because of cruelty and neglect, in 2021 was up by more than 50 percent from 2019, Dilmore said. It's something the shelter team wants to look into further, she said, but attention has been prioritized on keeping up with the shelter's increased volume, as there was a 76 percent increase in the number of animals the shelter had on December 1st, 2021, compared with December 1st, 2019, Dilmore said. Our vet team is a little bit behind trying to get their stuff done because they can't find veterinary technicians to fill the open spot that we have, Dilmore said. Impact of staffing shortages. Like the Denver Animal Shelter, the Denver Dumb Friends League also faces a staff shortage Steele estimated about 30% of the positions at their public veterinary hospital in Yuma are open and have been for a long time, she said. Staffing is also one of the biggest challenges for Max Fund Animal Adoption Center, a no-kill shelter in Denver, manager Selena Davison said. After the pandemic hit, the center's staffing went from 32 people to 12, she said. We are still digging our way out of that, Davison said. MaxFun had a grand opening December 11th for its new cat shelter, the Meow Manor in Denver. The new shelter is ready to house about 80 cats, Executive Director Kathy Gaines said. But because MaxFun doesn't have enough staff members, its plans to bring cats into the building are on hold. As of right now, we're struggling to have enough veterinarians and vet techs with our main operation, said Gaines, who hopes to get cats into the new facility before the first quarter of 2022 is over. In addition to the unpredictable waves of business and staff shortages, Steele and the Denver Animal Shelter's Dilmore reported having an increased average length of stay of animals, meaning the number of days an animal is in the shelter before being adopted. For the Denver Animal Shelter, the average length of stay for animals increased by nearly four days, from 11.6 to 15.3, contributing to the shelter hitting its capacity, Dilmore said. The entire shelter is pulling together to just make sure that the animals are cared for on a daily basis, because my team alone can't, can't do it, Dilmore said. While it's unknown what 2022 may bring to these animal welfare organizations, each shelter representative said community support is essential to their operations, sharing that those who adopt, foster, volunteer, and donate to their organizations help them provide quality care. We are grateful for our community, Steele said. We would not be anywhere near as accessible and impactful as we are if we didn't have the support. Charter Focused on Inclusion for Students with Disabilities to Close by Melanie Asmar, Chalkbeat, Colorado. A Denver Charter Elementary School focused on fully including students with disabilities will close at the end of this school year because of staffing and academic challenges school leaders say were exacerbated by the pandemic. 
The board of directors of Reach Charter School voted last month to close the school after learning that Denver Public Schools staff members were going to recommend the school board not renew its charter with Reach, which would have been the first such recommendation in nearly a decade. The Reach board decided to surrender its charter instead. Principal Jason Marsh, a former special education teacher who helped found the school seven years ago, said Reach weighed what it would take to fight the district's recommendation against giving families as much time as possible to find new schools for their children. The Denver School Board voted Thursday to accept Reach's charter surrender. We thought this would be a way we would be able to afford more time to work on student transition and getting our staff transitioned as well, Marsh said. Parent Miriam Arab, whose three-year-old son has a hearing disability, is worried about finding a school that provides the same support and family environment as Reach. He loves his teachers, Arab said of her son, who started preschool last spring. I just hope the school we find later has what they have, but I doubt it. Reach will be the 11th Denver charter school to close in the past four years. Many of the charters closed because of low enrollment, an issue affecting the entire district that likely will lead to more school closures. Reach also has suffered from declining enrollment. It has just 82 students in preschool through fifth grade right now, Marsh said, down from 140 two years ago. The recommendation to not renew Reach's charter stemmed partly from a school visit conducted by district staffers in November. While teachers were observed treating students respectfully and providing emotional support, the academic instruction was not always rigorous or high quality, according to a report obtained by Chalkbeat. The report notes significant gaps in teaching grade-level content and providing extra help to students who need it. That wasn't the experience of Jacqueline Miller and her 8-year-old son, who has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and anxiety. When he started at Reach in kindergarten, he would get so overwhelmed in the classroom that his behavior would become explosive. Now in third grade, he's learned to advocate for himself and his needs, and he's reading on grade level. They just saw him for who he is, Miller said of the REACH staff. That's what's so powerful about REACH. They know what each kid's unique gifts are and where they need support. And I think that really empowers the kids to grow there. REACH's model is unique in Denver Public Schools in that one-third of its students have special education plans and two-thirds do not. All students are taught in the same classrooms, a practice known as inclusion. Although Denver Public Schools has said it wants to become a nationwide model for inclusive practices, many Denver students with disabilities are still served in separate classrooms at least some of the time. In accepting Reach's charter surrender, Denver School Board members said the district should learn from the parts of Reach's model that worked well. Several said it pained them to see the school close. We must make sure, not just as a board, not just as a superintendent, not just as staff, but as community partners as well, that schools that are serving vulnerable communities are able to keep their doors open, said board member Michelle Quattlebaum. Marsh said Reach's model made it difficult to find qualified teachers who believe in the mission, a challenge that was exacerbated by pandemic staffing shortages. REACH also struggled with the frequent back and forth between in-person and remote learning, some of which was driven by district-wide decisions and some of which was in response to COVID-19 outbreaks at the school. 
Reach was never intended to be a remote learning program, Marsh said. It was very challenging for our impacted young students to be online and then transitioning them back to in-person learning and being able to maintain the high level of rigor. It was very challenging. COVID-19, government to begin taking requests for tests. By Cheryl Gay Stolberg, The New York Times, Washington. Americans will be able to request free rapid coronavirus tests from the federal government beginning Wednesday, but the test will take 7 to 12 days to arrive, senior Biden administration officials said Friday. The administration's website to process the requests, covidtests.gov, was up and running Friday, the latest sign of its efforts to ramp up access to testing since the fast-spreading Omicron variant sent coronavirus case counts soaring. But the delay in accepting orders and the lag in shipping mean that people are unlikely to receive the free tests until the end of January at the earliest. In some parts of the country, that may be after the peak of the current surge of cases. President Joe Biden said last month that his administration would purchase 500 million rapid at-home coronavirus tests and distribute them to Americans free of charge. On Thursday, he announced plans to buy an additional 500 million tests, bringing the total to 1 billion. The administration has contracted for 420 million tests. Each household will be limited to four free tests. The Postal Service will handle shipping and delivery through first-class mail, the official said. Free tests also will be available at some community health centers, rural clinics, and federal testing sites. Separately, people with private insurance should be able to start seeking reimbursement for tests they purchased themselves beginning Saturday, less than a week after the administration announced the new rule. Insurers will be required to cover eight at-home tests per person per month. The administration also is creating incentives to encourage insurers to work with pharmacies and other retailers so people can be reimbursed at the time of purchase, as is often the case with prescription drugs. But some insurers say it probably will take weeks to set up the system the White House envisions. Expanding testing capacity is one of a series of steps the Biden administration has taken to increase its response to the Omicron variant which arrived in the United States shortly after Thanksgiving and has pushed hospitals to the brink of being overwhelmed in at least two dozen states. The White House has faced harsh criticism for failing to have enough tests before the Omicron surge. Some public health experts have been calling for months for the government to make better use of coronavirus tests as a way to control the spread of the virus and to create a guaranteed market for diagnostics by purchasing them directly from manufacturers. One of those critics, Dr. Mara Aspinall, an expert in biomedical diagnostics at Arizona State University, called the president's recent moves to expand testing an important step forward and an essential acknowledgement of the importance of testing as a mitigation strategy. You've got to give them credit for getting this done in less than a month, she said, while noting that the 7- to 12-day time frame is not ideal. Testing has been a challenge for the federal government since the earliest days of the pandemic. Supply chain shortages made them hard to come by, and overloaded laboratories took days to process them. 
Biden, who came into office promising to ramp up testing, has made some progress in expanding the supply of rapid at-home tests. There were none available to American consumers when he took office. But the Omicron wave has put intense pressure on the nation's testing capacity. At-home tests began flying off shelves and are now scarce in many parts of the country. At the same time, some consumers are confused about how to use them. Administration officials sought to clear up some of that confusion Friday, specifying three reasons people should use at-home tests. They begin to have symptoms of COVID-19. They were exposed to someone who tested positive for the virus five or more days earlier, or they are planning to gather indoors with someone at risk of COVID-19 and want to assure themselves they are negative. Beyond limited availability, cost has been a major barrier in access to at-home tests. They are expensive, about $12 each. The administration has pledged to ensure equitable distribution of the tests. A White House fact sheet said the government would place a high priority on getting tests to households experiencing the highest social vulnerability and in communities that have experienced a disproportionate share of COVID-19 cases and deaths. Pandemic recovery, prices to stay high for oil. In U.S. and globally, producers have not kept up with demand. By Stanley Reed, the New York Times. Nearly two years ago, the world's oil producers slammed on the brakes and drastically cut production as the pandemic gripped the world's economies. The sharp pullback came with an implicit promise that as factories reopened and planes returned to the air, the oil industry would revive too, gradually scaling up production to help economies return to pre-pandemic health. It is not exactly turning out that way. Oil producers are finding it harder than expected to ramp up output. Members of the cartel OPEC Plus, which agreed to cut output by about 10 million barrels a day in early 2020, routinely are falling well short of their rising monthly production targets. In a lot of places, once output has been reduced, it is not easy to bring it back, said Richard Bronze, head of geopolitics at Energy Aspects, a London-based research firm. Production in the United States, the world's largest oil producer, also has been slow to recover from its one million barrel a day plummet in 2020, as companies and investors are wary of committing money amid climate concerns and volatile prices. The Energy Information Administration forecasts that U.S. crude output in 2022, while rising, is likely to average 500,000 barrels a day below 2019 levels. This global pattern of lagging production has helped push oil prices to seven-year highs, stoking inflation, which has become a political issue in the United States and elsewhere. Brent crude, the international standard, is close to $84 a barrel, while West Texas Intermediate, the U.S. benchmark, is selling for close to $82 a barrel. The gap between the target announced by OPEC+, Plus, which makes up nearly half the world's oil output, and actual output seems to be growing. The International Energy Agency, a Paris-based forecasting group, pegged the shortfall of the 19 OPEC Plus countries covered by quotas at 650,000 barrels a day for November. Energy Aspects forecast that the deficit will reach just over 1 million barrels a day this month, or 1% of world supplies, and probably will increase later in the year. 
Forecasters are split on the oil outlook, with the International Energy Agency saying in its most recent monthly report in December that much-needed relief for tight markets is on the way. The Energy Information Administration has forecast that oil prices will fall later this year. Still, undershooting by countries such as Nigeria and Angola has become the norm as their oil industries struggle. A variety of factors are causing production in some countries to fall short, including political turmoil, outmoded regulatory regimes, and pressures on international oil companies to rethink their investments so as to bolster profits and reduce carbon emissions. That shift could leave developing countries that depend on oil income out in the cold. There are many basins that are simply of no interest anymore," said Gerald Keeps. President of Competitive Energy Strategy, a consulting firm, referring to petroleum-bearing regions in the eyes of international oil companies, even a country such as Nigeria, Africa's largest producer, doesn't make the cut. He added, "Oil industry giants for decades courted Nigeria, investing billions of dollars, but production has been slipping." In November, the country was supposed to pump about 1.6 million barrels a day, but missed that target by more than 300,000 barrels a day, according to the International Energy Agency. Many problems lie behind the shortfall. Nigeria's industry is plagued by damage to infrastructure caused by oil thieves and others. Problems that have worsened in recent months, according to the industry. International companies, including Shell, which has long been a major investor in Nigeria, are reducing their presence gradually in swampy areas where their installations are vulnerable. They are being replaced by smaller companies with less capital to spend. Analysts say, without investment in drilling and technology, even the best endowed oil states will see their output dwindle. A case in point is troubled Venezuela, where amid neglect of the industry, production has shrunk to the relatively minuscule level of less than one million barrels a day, less than one tenth of Saudi Arabia's output, despite claims of having the world's largest reserves, about 300 billion barrels. Kuwait, a wealthy Persian Gulf oil state, has seen its capacity produce decline about 18 percent over three years. Kamel R. Harami, a Kuwaiti analyst, said the domestic industry does not have the experience and the expertise to deal with old and aged oil fields, but that public opinion is resistant to bringing in international companies. Even Russia, which is nearly tied with Saudi Arabia as the leading producer in OPEC Plus, is close to the short-term limit of what it can produce. Analysts say. Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, produces about 10% of the oil on the world's market and could produce more. Most OPEC producers are becoming capacity constrained," said Bill Farren Price, director of intelligence at Enverus, an energy market research firm. But Saudi Arabia is a different story. Its appetite for active oil market management is undiminished," he added. Each month since the pandemic hit, OPEC Plus members have met to set output quotas. Following a schedule agreed to in July, the group plans to raise the overall output by 400,000 barrels a day each month, even though they are missing the targets. Stung by gasoline prices that have risen about 40 percent in the past year, the White House has leaned on the Saudis and their allies to go faster in opening up the throttle. But OPEC officials so far have been unwilling to lower the quotas of those who are not able to hit targets and reassign them to other countries. We have to keep what they are allotted.
Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, the Saudi oil minister, told journalists late last year. The alternative, he added, would be a monthly debate over who gets what. Analysts say Saudi officials do not want to increase output unilaterally and risk busting the arrangement with other producers that gives them so much control. In addition, the lagging countries serve as a stealthy way to trim the cartel's output, helping the Saudis enjoy high prices while increasing their own production. COVID-19. Biden team regroups after Supreme Court vaccine loss. By Zeke Miller. The Associated Press. Washington. Concerned but not giving up, President Joe Biden is anxiously pushing ahead to prod people to get COVID-19 shots after the Supreme Court put a halt to the administration's sweeping vaccinate or test plan for large employers. At a time when hospitals are being overrun and record numbers of people are getting infected with the Omicron variant, the administration hopes states and companies will order their own vaccinate or test requirements. And if the presidential bully pulpit still counts for persuasion, Biden intends to use it. The high court's ruling on Thursday does not stop me from using my voice as president to advocate for employers to do the right thing to protect Americans' health and economy. He said the court's conservative majority all but struck down the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's requirement that employers with 100 or more employees require their workers to be vaccinated against the coronavirus or tested weekly. Biden expressed disappointment with the outcome, but said the mandates have had the desired effect, reducing the number of unvaccinated adults. Today, that number is down to under 35 million, he said, of the unvaccinated. Had my administration not put vaccination requirements in place, we would now be experiencing a higher death toll from COVID-19 and even more hospitalizations. While the court left open the possibility for the U.S. to pursue more targeted mandates, White House officials said there were no immediate plans to seek a redo of the regulation. It's now up to the states and individual employers to put in place vaccination requirements, said White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki on Friday. The United States is already languishing with a 60 percent vaccination rate near the bottom of peer nations, said Lawrence Gostin, a public health law expert at Georgetown University. Many large businesses that had already put in place vaccination or testing requirements indicated they had no plans to reverse course. But smaller companies said they were breathing a sigh of relief, fearing worker shortages if the OSHA rule had been allowed to go into force. The Supreme Court decision has taken a little bit of a burden of worry off of our shoulders, said Kyle Carraway, marketing director at Doolittle Trailer Manufacturing, which joined a lawsuit by the Missouri Attorney General challenging Biden's policy. About 90 percent of the 175 employees at the company indicated they would refuse to comply, he said. Both defendants and Longmont postal shootings set for trial by Mitchell Byers. The Daily Camera. Both suspects charged with first-degree murder in the October shooting of a Longmont postal worker are headed to trial after a judge found probable cause for the case to move forward and one of the defendants elected to immediately enter a not-guilty plea. Devin Schreiner, 26, and Andrew James Ritchie, 34, are now set for a three-week trial starting June 6th in the death of Jason Schaefer, 33. 
Schreiner and Ritchie had an evidentiary hearing Thursday to determine whether there was enough evidence to move the case forward and continue to hold both defendants without bail. After testimony from three witnesses, Boulder District Judge Thomas Mulvihill Thursday afternoon ruled there was enough evidence to do both. The next step typically would be for attorneys to set an arraignment date several weeks down the line, at which time the defendants could enter into a plea agreement or enter not guilty pleas and be set for trial. But instead, Richie's attorneys, Mary Claire Mulligan and Beth Kelly, told Mulvihill immediately after the ruling that Richie wanted to enter a not guilty plea and have the case set for trial. Because the district attorney's office is trying Richie and Schreiner in the same trial, Mulvihill said this also would mean a plea of not guilty for Schreiner as well. But Schreiner's attorney, Jennifer Engelman, who had just asked Mulvihill for more than six weeks for an arraignment date, told Mulvihill she could not advise her client or be effective on such a short turnaround. Earlier in the hearing, Engelman told Mulvihill there was so much evidence in the case the public defender's office had to get a separate server to store the terabytes of files. Engelman, who said she would also be moving to separate the two defendants' cases, moved to withdraw from the case when it was set for trial. Mulvihill denied the request. When a visibly frustrated Engelman then tried to make a verbal record, Mulvihill told her instead to file a written motion. A motions hearing on the case is set for April 7th. Schreiner is accused of shooting and killing Schaefer, her ex-boyfriend, and the father of her child, while Schaefer was delivering mail in southwest Longmont on October 13th. The lead investigator on the case, Longmont Police Detective Joshua Burke, said Schaefer was shot three times next to his postal delivery van just after 12.30 p.m. while next to a cluster of mailboxes on Heather Hill Street just west of Renaissance Drive. Burke said immediately upon arriving at the scene, two Longmont postal workers asked police, did the baby mama do it? Referring to Schreiner. Burke said Schaefer and Schreiner had a child shortly after they started dating and had been dating on and off and getting into custody disputes for most of the six years since the child was born. Just two days before the shooting, Schaefer had filed a request to modify parenting time, and Burke said witnesses said Schreiner felt there was a fear that the child would be taken away from her. The custody situation was the initial factor that initially brought Schreiner into view as a suspect, Burke said. It was fairly well known that Jason Schaefer had recently filed a motion for parenting time that the defendant had recently been served with. Shakrelli, ordered to return $64 million, is barred from drug industry. New York. Martin Shakrelli must return $64.6 million in profits he and his former company reaped from jacking up the price and monopolizing the market for a life-saving drug, a federal judge ruled Friday, while also barring the provocative imprisoned ex-CEO from the pharmaceutical industry for the rest of his life. Shakrelli was CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals, later Viera, when it raised the price of Daraprim from $13.50 to $750 per pill after obtaining exclusive rights to the decades-old drug in 2015. It treats a rare parasitic disease that strikes pregnant women, cancer patients, and AIDS patients. Thank you for joining us for the Saturday, January 15, 2022 reading of the Denver Post. My name is Doug Crane.